the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Friday edition of the Georgine Rice Show on this 13th of September, seven minutes after four o'clock. James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. Well, we're going to start out uh, before we shift to the lighter side of the news. We're going to start out with some of the day's headlines. So bear with us. There's some uh, some news. Well, long simmering policy disputes between Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren and a slew of other candidates exploded in into the open during Thursday night's Democratic primary debate as the candidates, often with raised voices, laid bare their fundamental disagreements on Medicare for all, immigration and more. That's what campaigns do. Intermittent efforts by some candidates to show unity and keep the heat on President Trump repeatedly failed, with most striving instead to score an aggressive debate moment on stage in Houston. Well, the clashes settled any questions about whether the top tier candidates meeting on stage for the first time with the addition of Warren would hold back. Biden seemed mindful that Warren had been surging in recent weeks and went after her directly. But the most heated clashes of the night came between Biden and fellow Obama administration member Castro, who uh, tangled at length in direct and seemingly personal terms. At one point, Castro hammered Biden for claiming that individuals would not be required to buy into his health care plan in order to receive coverage. You just said two minutes ago they would have to buy in. Are you forgetting what you said two minutes ago? Castro asked. Some commentators said Castro. Castro's jab was an improper, thinly veiled reference to Biden's age, and there was an audible boo in the room at the time. Well, according to veteran Democratic pollster and Fox News contributor Doug Schoen, one big winner and two surprise losers emerged from the third Democratic presidential primary debate. In his analysis for News Digital, Schoen says that Joe Biden was the big winner Thursday night. Ultimately, Biden's impressive, though not perfect, performance was a much-needed display of strength and preparedness and will likely solidify his frontrunner status, he writes. Well, the two surprise losers, Schoen says, were Elizabeth Warren for not delivering the kind of knockout performance that observers expected, and Senator Bernie Sanders for not performing well enough Thursday night to surge in the polls and pull ahead of Warren or Biden. Meanwhile, Andrew McCabe, former deputy and acting FBI director and a current um, CNN contributor, faces potential criminal prosecution after the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington, D.C. recommended moving forward with charges on Thursday, and the Justice Department rejected a last-minute appeal from McCabe's lawyers. McCabe appealed the decision all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. um, Jeffrey Resin, the deputy attorney general, but he rejected that request, according to a person familiar with the situation. The potential charges relate to the Department of Justice Inspector General's findings against him regarding misleading statements concerning Hillary Clinton's uh, investigation or an investigation related to her. Gary, uh, rather Greg Jarrett, legal analyst, says that the uh, uh, that McCabe faces an imminent and well-deserved reckoning with justice. And President Trump signaled Thursday that he is open to the possibility of an interim agreement to resolve a lingering trade dispute with China until a permanent deal can be reached. A lot of people are talking about, and I see a lot of analysts say, 
uh, saying an interim deal, meaning we'll do pieces of it, the easy ones first. But there's no easy or hard, Trump told reporters ahead of his appearance at a congressional retreat in Baltimore. There's a deal or there's not a deal. It's something we would consider, I guess, but we're doing very well. Well, Dow Jones Industrial Average S&P 500 and NASDAQ futures each ticked slightly higher on Trump's remarks. And President Trump told Republican lawmakers Thursday that sometime this year he will announce a substantial tax cut for middle income folks who work so hard. We're working on a tax cut for the middle income uh, people that is going to be very, very inspirational, the president told House Republicans at their annual retreat in Baltimore. It's going to be something that I think it's what everyone's really looking for, end quote. Well, Thursday's visit marked Trump's first trip to Baltimore since insulting the city in a series of July tweets, calling it a disgusting rat and rodent-infested mess. Protesters gathered outside the Marriott Hotel on the Baltimore waterfront with a giant inflatable rat adorned with yellow hair and a red tie in tow. Well, the U.S. said Thursday that it will disclose the names of a Saudi citizen sought by lawyers for victims of the September 11th attacks who want to link the kingdom to the terrorist plot. Justice Department lawyers said in a court filing that the FBI will make the name available to a limited circle of people that includes lawyers for survivors and victims, relatives as well as attorneys for the Saudi government. The decision is a big step forward for 9-11 victims who allege in a long-running lawsuit that Saudi Arabia provided support for the attacks. And the Trump administration has released $250 million in military aid to Ukraine that had been held uh, despite criticism to the uh, to that the money was desperately needed to deter Russian aggression and territorial expansion. That move came before a Senate appropriations debate Thursday when lawmakers from both parties were set to rebuke the administration. And according to Reuters, the Trump administration is moving forward with a plan to revoke California's authority to set its own vehicle greenhouse gas standards and declare that states are preempted from setting their own vehicle rules. Three people briefed on the matter uh, said on Thursday, the EPA on the uh, in rather August 2018 proposed revoking a waiver granted to California in 2013 under the Clean Air Act as part of the Trump administration's plan to roll back Obama era fuel economy standards. California was endeavoring to set fuel efficiency standards for the entire country. On Wednesday, California lawmakers approved AB 1487, which caps rent increases at 5% per year plus inflation and prevents landlords from evicting tenants without citing a government-approved reason. Economists and other policy experts have long criticized rent control for reducing the supply and quality of rental housing in the long run. And during the preliminary hearing this week in the criminal case against undercover journalist David Delighton and Sandra Merritt, a semi-retired Planned Parenthood executive admitted that the abortion business had no ban on altering abortion procedures in order to better harvest baby body parts that would later be sold, allegedly, for profit. And Christine Blasey Ford's father apparently supported Brett Kavanaugh in an inconvenient truth. On this day in history in 1943, Chiang Kai-shek became president of China. On this day in 1948, Republican Margaret Chase Smith of Maine is elected to the U.S. Senate, becoming the first woman to serve in both chambers of Congress. On this day in 1982, Mississippi Governor Ross Barnett rejects the U.S. Supreme Court's order for the University of Mississippi to admit James Meredith, a black student, declared uh, declaring in a televised address, we will not drink from the cup of genocide. 
I was about six at that time. And on this day in 1993 at the White House, Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin and PLO Chairman Yasser Arafat shake hands after signing an accord granting limited Palestinian autonomy. Well, the big news, of course, was the debate that took place last night among the Democrats. They covered health care, socialism and guns. One of the biggest moments came as Beto declared, yes, we're going to take your AR-15, your AK-47. He also called for reparations. Moderators didn't ask questions or say anything about the right of Americans to defend themselves from criminals or the Second Amendment, which would have been an interesting twist to the debate. Attacking Biden's age, Castro tore into the former vice president for forgetting what he said just two minutes ago. Castro was wrong, by the way. Biden got the most speaking time during the debate, followed by Elizabeth Warren, Cory Booker, then uh, Bernie Sanders. As for words, Biden had the most, followed by Booker, Warren and Harris in that order. Biden led the Google search trend as well. Uh, Despite a few late stumbles, he had his best performance thus far. Observers are saying the big awaited showdown with Warren never arrived, i.e. postponed, most likely. And Booker is up. Harris is down. Everyone else treading water. From Kimberly Strassel, she said, for a woman who has a plan for so many things, remarkable how many questions Warren refused to answer. You'd raise taxes for Medicare for all, right? No answer. What would uh, uh, you do about uh, flood of Central Americans? No answer. An interesting Uh, exchange. We're going to take a break. We'll take a closer look at the debate and much more before we make our switch to the lighter side of the news right here on The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 21 minutes after four o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, winding our way through some of the top news stories of the day. And we'll make the switch a bit later in the program to the lighter side of the news. Well, in the most contentious Democratic debate thus far, a winnowed field of 10 Democratic candidates took the stage in Houston last night, sparring over hot button issues like health care and immigration. Notably, this was the first time that frontrunners Senator Elizabeth Warren and former Vice President Joe Biden shared the debate stage. At the end of the night, Joe Biden emerged uh, as the winner. Warren and Senator Bernie Sanders were surprise losers, according to many observers. Warren and Biden exhibited stark differences of style, policy and vision for the party, embodying two opposing theories of what the party should be. The divide was apparent during an explosive debate over health care, during which Biden, the former vice president, went on to attack against Warren and Senator Bernie Sanders for the hidden costs associated with their Medicare for all plans. Warren deflected when asked if middle class taxes will go up to pay for Medicare for all, saying total costs would go down, but not explicitly stated whether taxes for middle class families would increase. What we're talking about here is what's going to happen in families' pockets, Warren said. This is about candor, honesty, Biden retorted. There will be a deductible in your pay, uh, paycheck. Someone making 60 grand with three kids, they're going to end up paying $5,000 more. Although uh, many were watching Warren expecting her to deliver the knockout performance against the former vice president, her chief rival, the senator fell somewhat short of that expectation. And while this will likely not impact or standing in the presidential race at the early stage, which, according to most polls, is a very close second behind Biden. She didn't have the debate moment that many were anticipating. She was a surprise loser when the evening was ultimately over. Well, aside from Biden generally strong in his performance, he compellingly and convincingly delivered his core message of restoring, protecting and rebuilding the Obama-Biden record. On the other hand, the first 30 minutes of the debate during the health care discussion were arguably Biden's best
best moments on the campaign trail to date. Though the former vice president's performance wasn't perfect, he did exhibit a much-needed display of strength and preparedness. He was the night's big winner. Aside from Biden's generally strong performance, he compellingly and convincingly delivered his core message of restoring, protecting, and rebuilding his legacy. The senator says um, she's for Bernie. Well, I'm for Barack, Biden said about Warren's support for Medicare for All, referencing last month's debate when Warren said she completely agreed with Sanders on Medicare for All. At the previous debate, several progressive candidates took aim at former President Obama's legacy on health care as a way of attacking the former vice president on his record. However, in a marked reversal, both Warren and uh, Senator um, Harris of California, who sharply criticized the former president in the last debate, praised the former president for the positive systematic change to health care that came as a result of Obamacare. If there was an absentee winner of the debate, it was the former president. Aside from Biden, one of the clearest and most concise health care arguments came from Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota, who was polled consistently in the low single digits and had yet to have a strong debate moment before Thursday night. Klobuchar said that although Sanders may have written the Medicare for All bill, she actually read the bill, noting that under Sanders' plan, we will no longer have private insurance as we know it, resulting in millions of Americans losing their private insurance. Similar to previous debates, the discussion of immigration had the former vice president on the defensive over the $3 million, $3 million rather, undocumented immigrants that were deported under the Obama administration. Former Housing and Urban Development Secretary Julian uh, Castro in uh, particular, took aim at the former vice president, using the moment to attack him for taking credit for positive elements of the Obama legacy and distancing himself from criticism. He wants to take credit for Obama's work, but not have to answer any questions, Castro said of uh, Biden. These attacks largely fell flat, as did Castro's attempt to jab at Biden's age. Aside from Castro's attacks throughout the entire night, Sanders was the candidate who attacked Biden the most. He went after the uh, former vice president, not just on health care, but also on corporations. Uh, Biden's vote in favor of the Iraq war as a senator and on trade. But while Sanders was one of the more vocal candidates, he didn't deliver the performance he needed in order to uh, pull ahead of Biden or Warren in the polls. He was the night's other big loser. Ultimately, Biden's um, uh, less than perfect performance was a much needed display of strength and preparedness if he is going to capture his party's nomination. Meanwhile, the fourth Democratic presidential primary debate will take place next month in Westerville, Ohio. That's according to the Democratic National Committee announcing on Friday candidates uh, who are fighting to qualify for the televised showdown have uh, until uh, that time. The debate, it'll be the fourth round this year, will be hosted by the New York Times and CNN at Otterbein University. The party said in a news release, the debate is scheduled for the 15th of October. If enough candidates qualify to split the candidates uh, over two nights, the second will be uh, the following night, October 16th. The announcement came a day after 10 candidates sparred with the ABC News hosted debate. And the Justice Department's inspector general told lawmakers today his team is nearing completion of its long-awaited review of alleged surveillance abuses by the Department of Justice and FBI in the course of the Russian investigation, saying they have submitted a draft report to the attorney general and are finalizing the report ahead of its public release. We have now begun the process of finalizing our report by providing a draft of our factual findings to the department and the FBI for classification, determination and marking and marking rather. 
Michael Horowitz wrote in a Friday letter to several House and Senate committees uh, today. Uh, This step is consistent with our process for reports such as this, one that involves classified material. Well, Attorney General Bill Barr has received the draft report from Horowitz and will begin the process of reviewing it, according to a source in the department, the inspector general said his team has reviewed over one million records and conducted over 100 interviews, including several of witnesses uh, who only recently agreed to be interviewed. Horowitz and his investigators have probed how the infamous anti-Trump dossier compiled by former British spy Christopher Steele was used to secure the original surveillance warrant for the former Trump aide Carter Page in October of 2016, as well as for three renewals. Horowitz's team has questioned why the FBI considered Steele a credible source and why the Bureau seemed to use news reports to bolster Steele's credibility. He indicated that once the Department of Justice and the FBI sink Uh, send back the marked document relating to classified material. His team will proceed with their usual process of preparing final draft public and classified reports and ensuring that appropriate reviews occur for accuracy and comment purposes. So the report will not be made public in the near term. Well, federal prosecutors in Washington have recommended that criminal charges be filed against Andrew McCabe. The FBI's former deputy director and Justice Department has rejected a last-ditch appeal by McCabe's lawyers, according to a report uh, on Thursday. This clears the way for what appears to be McCabe's imminent indictment. McCabe has uh, indicated that if charged, he would claim the Department of Justice was under pressure from the White House. Jesse Liu, the U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia, has reportedly decided that McCabe should be charged. The decision was based on a referral by the Department of Justice Inspector General appointed by Obama, Michael Horowitz, in a comprehensive report last year issued after a probe of a leak of investigative information to the media orchestrated by McCabe. Horowitz found that McCabe had misled investigators, including making false statements under oath. As observed um, over this uh, period, when the IG's uh, report was released, the case laid out by Horowitz appeared compelling. Representative Andy Biggs said Friday on America's Newsroom that former FBI deputy director was at the heart of the soft coup attempt against the president, reacting to the news that McCabe could face prosecution over other matters. U.S. Attorney Jesse Liu recommended moving forward Thursday with charges against McCabe at the Justice Department. Uh, The potential charges relate to the inspector general's findings against the former FBI leader. And Felicity Huffman was sentenced Friday to 14 days in prison and a $30,000 fine for her role in a sprawling college admission scandal involving rich and famous families who funneled cash to fixers in order to get their kids into the nation's most prestigious colleges and universities. In addition, the actress will serve one year of probation and perform 250 hours of community service. I think this is the right sentence here. U.S. District Court Judge Indiri Talwani sitting in Boston, told Huffman, you can move forward and rebuild your life after this. Without this sentence, I think the community around you would ask why you got away with this. Well, a tearful Huffman had addressed the judge before she received her sentence, saying, I'm sorry to you, judge. I am deeply sorry to the students, parents, and colleges impacted by my actions. The Emmy Award-winning actress confessed, I am sorry to my daughters and my husband. I have betrayed them all. And finally, a former Ohio high school cheerleader who was acquitted on Thursday of killing her unwanted newborn told a court she was really, really sorry after a judge sentenced her to probation on Friday for burying the corpse in her family backyard in 2017. 
Brooke Schuyler Richardson, now 20, was found not guilty of aggravated murder, involuntary murder, and child endangerment in May of um, in the May 2017 death of her newborn daughter. On Friday, the Warren County judge ordered her to three years probation for the lesser charge of corpse abuse. I would do anything and above uh, that you uh, ask, and I understand, and I just want to say how sorry I was, the um, defendant said in court. Well, the judge called her sentencing a mandatory community control case, which requires at least placing the young woman on probation. What that means, Ms. Richardson, the judge said, is because this is a felony of the fifth degree and you have no prior criminal record and you don't fit the other statutory criteria. The most I am required by law to place you on is community control. Uh, the young woman at the age of 15 delivered a child in the, the bathroom of her home. Uh, Apparently, they were able to determine that the child had been stillborn. She buried the child in the backyard without telling anyone what had happened. It was only after her doctor, who had informed her she uh, had been pregnant, uh, discovered that there was no child, that this became a court case. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 36, 37 minutes after four o'clock. Now, they did something to my computer screen. I have two of them. One on the right is one I control. The one on the left tells me what's happening, when a commercial break is coming, what time it is and so on. It's no longer geriatric font. Somebody changed this. I guess it's a different computer screen and I, I can't read anything on it. I'm sure it's not me. I think it's the screen and the image on the screen. That's you can't read the small. computer screen? Well, no, everything's smaller. It used to be everything was bigger on this screen on my left, but it's all... So just increase the... the I can't. I don't know how to do it on this one because this isn't... This is an official screen, so I don't know how to do it. No, no, it's... I don't know how to do it on this one. Do you need some help? Yes. Okay. Are you going to come in here and fix it? Uh, Yeah, during the next break. Can you see the time close enough that... uh... No, I can't read the time. (laughs) (laughs) I can't read it. Okay. I'm not getting older and more feeble. Hmm. Anywho, um, turn on the news tonight. Turn on, you know, anything that purports to deliver the news like I just purported to do. And you'll be bombarded with gloomy stories. You'll hear about disasters and human suffering, political scandal, environmental destruction, because that's, you know, what's going on. Maybe there will be some good news sandwiched in there. We'll try to do some of that today. A piece of an uh, exciting new scientific discovery, perhaps a profile of a talented young musician, which, by the way, Clark is uh, developing into a talented young musician with his ukulele. Well, maybe not so young and maybe not so talented. But I'm but... really very impressed. You started playing the ukulele how long ago? A little over a year. Yeah, just a little over a year. You actually take lessons. You've taken mm-hmm. it seriously. You bought one last time you had you vacationed there, I think. That's when you purchased in your... In Hawaii? Yeah, in yeah. Hawaii. And um, you've been playing ever since. And I'm really very impressed you've gotten quite good. I've gotten better than I was a year ago. But you've taken it seriously? Yeah. And yeah. In fact, you brought a new uh, ukulele home with you. I Yeah, I did. I did. This is my first solid wood ukulele. Beautiful spruce top, mahogany body. Sounds great. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful instrument. Mm. But we're not going to talk about that, although I guess we just kind of did. We just did, didn't we? Anyway, news coverage is predominantly negative. Uh, Why is that the case? Well, for one thing, you report on what's happening that affects most people. But ultimately, of course, journalists decide what stories and issues uh, receive the coverage. They're also catering to the demands of their audience. And it seems that we respond most, speaking of audiences, to negative stories. But not all of us, according to a recent international study by PNAS, Looking at people's psychological response to news reports, 
uh, has found that overall we do seem to have greater reactions to negative stories. And I'm not sure what reaction they're referring to as people are listening and watching from uh, locales that are not connected. But there is um, so much variation in how different people respond, say the researchers, that there may be a bigger market for positive stories than journalists often realize. Well, previous studies into people's negativity bias when consuming media, they've largely focused on Anglo-American participants. I'm an American, not an Anglo. So Stuart Soroka from the University of Michigan and uh, colleagues set about investigating whether this bias was a universal phenomenon or specific to certain cultures. Well, the team recruited, well, only 1,156 participants from 17 countries around the world, from Ghana to Sweden to Chile to watch a series of BBC news stories. And each participant saw five international clips consisting of a mixture of positive news and negative news. Well, participants also saw one positive and one negative news story local to their country. Um, uh, One of them, for example, from New Zealand. Uh, participants there saw a story about local group that teaches dogs to drive. Is that really a news story, teaching dogs to drive? That may have skewed the outcome of this whole thing. Anyway, the researchers also... I, I, I want to know if a dog is driving. <laughs> well, I that guess you news. would want to know that. Yeah. Uh, the researchers also measured participants' heart rate variability, skin um, conductance. Uh, while they watched these clips, the psychological measures are related to attentiveness and can provide a record of people's reactions in real time. Well, overall, heart rate variability, skin conductance, I've never even heard that word before, but now I've said it twice, uh, tell you something as well. But the results suggest that if the media want to attract audiences, they don't necessarily need to only show negative content, the authors discovered, uh, even as the average tendency may be for viewers to be more attentive to um, negative content, there would appear to be a good number of individuals with rather different or perhaps more mutable preferences. So in the interest of this study that indicated in countries other than our own, people uh, different than the average American, they would prefer good news stories. We're going to attempt to provide some of that today on our Friday Fun program. After we've already bombarded you with all the sad and bitter news of the day. Well, how about this? Voters in one California congressional district could be seeing double when they go to the polls next year. Representative Raul Ruiz is a Democrat. He's represented the 36th congressional district. He's going to be up for re-election in November of 2020. The four-term incumbent could face a GOP challenger from Raul Matthew Ruiz, a 57-year-old construction contractor from Paris, a small city about seven miles east of Los Angeles. Well, the two candidates named Ruiz could cause confusion for voters. The Democrat, a 47-year-old doctor, has won his last two elections by double digits. Representative uh, Raul Ruiz could face a challenge from Republican Representative wannabe Raul Ruiz right in the um, 2020 House race. Well, the names could add confusion. Uh, I want to give citizens another option, the other Ruiz says. He argued that his potential opponent had a scant record in Congress, calls and messages um, to that candidate were unheeded. On his campaign website, the Republican Ruiz, who was the challenger, said he saw the policies of Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the younger uh, Ruiz, and the rest of the liberal partisans in Congress, and they're pushing um, uh, that agenda, and he wants to challenge that. But distinguishing between Representative Paul Ruiz, and I'm not sure, can you put Representative on the ballot? Does that convey bias? And Ra- Raul Ruiz, the lesser, uh, could uh, create a problem in California. Two guys, same name, same ballot. Well, a couple who welcomed their daughter 
on the 18th anniversary of the September 11th terror attacks was shocked when the baby arrived at 9.11 p.m., weighed 9 pounds, 11 ounces. Now, if this, um, if this had happened in 2021, it might be even more exciting. Anyway, uh, Camatrione and Justin Brown arrived at Methodist uh, Hospital in Tennessee on Wednesday um, for a scheduled C-section. It was 8.55 when she entered the delivery room to welcome her little girl at exactly 9.11. And you kind of wonder, did they manipulate this to make it happen? Uh, Christina Brown was born, weighing exactly 9 pounds, 11 ounces. Time was just rolling, the newborn's father, Justin, told the local news station. The next thing we know, they called it 9-11, and then they got um, on the table, and they were like, oh my goodness, she weighs 9 pounds, 11 ounces. It's very rare, but very special. It just makes her an even more special little girl than she already is, the hospital staff member said. It's just a very rare, but a very... um, um, fortuitous occasion. It's never seen in its 38 years an occasion like this in which the birth date of a child and its weight corresponds with a notable date. Though the couple recognized 9-11 as a time of remembrance and sorrow for the country, they noted their daughter represents joy on such a day. She comes in on 9-11. There was so much devastation, but she's bringing all this joy and life into the world because everybody's been waiting for her. And so it was a nice uh, celebration on an otherwise very somber day. And then there's this, Farah Abraham. She commemorated the September 11th terrorist attack with a trip to Ground Zero. But the visit didn't come without a massive gaffe that floored social media users. The former teen mom star, uh, now 28, on Wednesday, seemingly confused 9-11 with the convenience chain store 7-Eleven. I guess it could happen. This is uh, her on her post online. Okay, so we wanted to do something. It's going to be September 11th in honor of the Freedom Towers and the observatory deck and everything of 7-Eleven. So we're going to do this, she said. Wow, look at this guy. Uh, Guys, she pointed the camera upward to show the One World Trade Center as she commemorated 7-Eleven for September 11, 2001. Well, the MTV cast member turned adult star said she was in fifth grade when the Twin Towers collapsed in 2001. She was visiting the building in New York City's lower Manhattan to enjoy this experience, to enjoy this experience with her daughter, Sophia, as she's now in fifth grade herself. Nearly 3,000 people died, she went on to say, on the occasion. Well, she described One World Trade as gorgeous, beautiful, and in memory of a lot of loved ones and a lot of others lost apparently unloved, and added she believes it's important for her nine-year-old daughter to learn about September 11th as she wasn't alive when it happened. While she seemingly didn't notice her mistake in the video, which she uploaded to Instagram and YouTube, social media users, of course, were quick to condemn um, the uh, post, saying that it was um, the error was disrespectful. One commentator said, uh, while they don't normally judge others, they were willing to suspend what they don't normally do for the sake of judging her in this case with the 7-Eleven post. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 51 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, a Colorado boy has paid tribute to his favorite movie with a photo shoot. Elijah Perman is five. He's a huge fan of the 2009 Pixar classic Up. His mother, who's a part-time photographer, says her son is obsessed with the movie. When he and his uh, twin sister Emily turned five recently, 
uh, she decided to do what she called magical shoots for their birthday. She, he, I was diagnosed with cancer right after my twins were born and had fears if I would uh, even get to see their fifth birthday, she said in an email. So for their fifth birthday, I wanted to celebrate the things they love with photos. It's a celebration for me and for them, she said. Well, Emily got a photo session with a horse dressed up as a unicorn, but her son Elijah chose to pay tribute to his favorite movie. And he donned his Boy Scouts uniform, similar to the character of Russell, while his great-grandparents, Richard and Caroline Bain, they proved to um, be dead ringers for Carl and Ellie from the movie. And, of course, there were balloons, lots and lots of balloons. It seemed like a sweet idea to get the grandparents involved in the process. Uh, Rachel Perman said, I love that we get to uh, celebrate them as well. So there's an adorable picture of this little boy in his scouting uniform standing next to his, I believe it's his great-grandfather, holding a big um, uh, bunch of balloons. And the older guy is wearing the sweater and the glasses just like the movie. It's just a sweet picture. And apparently it's a celebration for his birthday. Mom taking the pictures. And if weddings are about alienating your friends, this bride seems to have uh, done hers, well, just about right. An anonymous uh, user of Reddit has recently claimed that she and her um, uh, boyfriend were removed from a wedding because the bride accidentally sent them an invitation. Now, according to the anonymous post on the forum's wedding shaming page, there's yeah a wedding shaming page. The pair were sent an invitation to the two o'clock p.m. ceremony on the 24th of August. On the invite, uh, you can see in the picture we were invited from two p.m. They wrote. Uh, So we duly arrived in time for that. We were surprised to be invited to the day, but knowing what a flaky friend the bride has been over the years, I could understand why she might be struggling to fill a room these days, the anonymous guest wrote, also sharing that she RSVP'd to the bride after receiving the invite. So the invitation was sent, received, she RSVP'd. Well, the guest goes on to claim that they had a lovely chat with the bride over a beverage before the wedding dinner began after the ceremony. However, The sweet occasion quickly turned sour when the poster alleges that the chief bridesmaid, most likely the maid of honor, came over to shepherd the two aside. This is really awkward, and I'm really sorry to say this, but you're not supposed to be here until the evening, and the bride is freaking out because there's no place setting for you, the guest wrote of the bridesmaid. She was implying that we had just rocked up and crashed the wedding. So I got the day invite, which I'd luckily brought along out of my pocket and showed her, the guest continued, rather than accept the mistake and try to accommodate us. She just kept saying how awkward this is until I said, don't worry, we'll go and have some food elsewhere and come back for the party. I'm amazed that they came back for the party. Well, uh, the writer of this complaint shared that the wedding, which uh, took place in the UK, was split up into three tiers which consists of a day invite for your close family and friends, as many uh, as you can fit and can afford, and then a more casual invite for the party after the service, dinner and speeches, which you invite people you want there but aren't as close to or obliged to invite to the day. Well, the author wrote that they waited until everyone was called for dinner to not make a scene before slipping out, though they claimed that the bride began telling ushers and bridesmaids about the situation. According to the account, the ushers came over to physically separate the two from the rest of the guests as they were called to dinner. Well, the woman went on to allege that the two left the party, taking their card uh, with the $122 cash gift that they had brought with them and went out to eat uh, dinner uh, with the money that was supposed to be the gift, leaving the wedding party behind for good. 
They, the um, complainer also asked those uh, on the forum whether or not the two were in the right for how they responded to the bride's actions and received an overwhelming response that the pair were justified. Now, what do you think about that, Clark? They're invited to the wedding. They receive a physical invitation. She RSVPs to the wedding, arrives at the wedding, and then is told in a rather awkward confrontation that a mistake has been made and there's no accommodation for them. What would you have done? Would you have graciously said, I understand mistakes are made and you leave? Or would you have... Um, I would have left. Yeah, I think I just would have would have left, understanding that you know a bride doesn't check Match the list with the uh, but invitees who RSVP. But it's very tacky of the bride very. to ask them to leave. Well, and it's hard to imagine that they couldn't accommodate two additional yeah, people. You just do that. I mean, this is for the UK. Maybe you you know you only had a certain number of spaces, but they apparently were seated at a table before the names were called to get up and eat. Anyway, and then there's this: a bridesmaid who is a size ten. Or I should say, maid of honor. So this isn't just your run of the mill bridesmaid. This is the maid of honor. She's a size ten. Uh, she has been asked to serve with the fitness-obsessed bride and groom, but not without making some adjustments. Uh, she's from Orlando, Florida. She's planning to back out of being the maid of honor at the upcoming wedding for a friend she's known since age five. And by the way, that's about 30 years. The bride and the groom are both personal trainers, and most of their friends are from the gym. Now, you can picture how most of their friends probably look. Then you've got the maid of honor you've known for 30 years since you were five. She's a size 10. Well, the bride said that she and her fiancé were drawing up a diet and fitness plan for their would-be maid of honor so she could lose 20 to 30 pounds before the wedding. While the bride seemed to think she was being nice, the maid of honor would-be never expressed a desire to lose weight, and she's a little upset. The 33-year-old woman from Orlando, Florida, took to Reddit on Tuesday to vent her frustration and to seek some advice about how to deal with the bride's hurtful behavior. She said that since the bride and her fiancé, who are both personal trainers, offered her a diet and fitness plan and said they expected her to lose some major weight before the wedding, she's not even sure she wants to attend the nuptials, let alone serve in this capacity. Rude, she says. A maid of honor's uh, personal trainer, bride and groom, made her a workout plan, and it seems entirely inappropriate. Um, She insists that she's healthy and is fine with the way she looks. I'll never ask for help. I've never mentioned wanting to lose weight. They both just kind of took it upon themselves to, in quotes, help me. It seems, however, that her best friend of nearly three decades isn't fine with how she looks and expects her to change her lifestyle, transform her body in time for the wedding. Worse still, she presented the plan as if she were doing the maid of honor a generous favor. Tonight, she called me with the best news. Her fiance and her are putting together a great workout and meal plan uh, so that she can drop to the 20 to 30 pounds. Wow. Your thoughts, Clark? I won't say anything. <laughs> I, I can't even imagine. No. But that's the kind of vanity that goes into a lot of weddings these days. I've never asked for help. I've never mentioned wanting to lose weight, she says. She says she's obviously going to opt out of being maid of honor now and added that at this point, I don't even know if I want to go to the wedding. Why would anyone think this was okay? I honestly have no idea how to discuss this with her. I I wouldn't have any problem discussing this with her. I feel like it's uh, much more the fiancé than her, she concluded. In fact, it turns out that even the mother of the bride is confused by the bride's behavior. She turned into Bridezilla. This is a very out-of-character for her. Her mom emailed me last night saying this wasn't her at all, and her daughter's going to regret it the rest of her life. 
uh, if I'm not her maid of honor. She tried to say she really thought I was just too embarrassed to ask for help, and this was a time to do it. Wow. I My wife you, never became a bridezilla, but I've seen it happen with other brides. Yeah. Do not get in their way. I, w- I sometimes wonder if they put as not much thought and preparation into actually being married as they do this ceremony. Um, uh, I'm pretty sure a lot of people don't. Yeah, I'm afraid that's probably the yeah. case. And then there's this. Uh, people aren't getting hitched as much anymore. A new study by researchers at Cornell University found that marriage is on the decline because there is a shortage of economically attractive men on the market. Well, according to the study, women desired men that had an average earning potential that was about 58% higher than the actual unmarried men currently on the market have. In addition, is that a dangling participle? Anyway, in addition, the ideal husband... Uh, were 30% more likely to be employed and 19% more likely to have a college degree than those currently available to women. Um, The study also found ethnic groups, especially African-American women, face serious shortages of potential mates. So two unmarried women of low socioeconomic status and high socioeconomic status. So there are not enough economically attractive men, according to this study. Hmm. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in, well, where are we? We're at the top of the hour. We've got news and traffic. So we'll be back shortly. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show, seven minutes after five o'clock. Portions of our program today are brought to you by Liberty Coin and Currency. Well, a New Zealand advertising executive is facing the bleak prospect of being fired and decided to inject a bit of humor into the situation, bringing a professional clown to his final meeting instead of a colleague for emotional support. According to a uh, news report, Josh Thompson, a co-writer for ad agency FCB New Zealand and a budding comedian, revealed that he had spent some $200 to hire the clown about to be fired, by the way, dubbed Joe after getting an email from superiors asking to meet to discuss your role. The clown subsequently blew up balloon animals, even mimed crying when Thompson was handed his layoff paperwork, according to the New Zealand Herald. Explaining his decision on Facebook, Thompson, who'd been in the role since April, wrote, A while ago, I got a job. A short while later, I lost it. For anyone who hasn't been fired... What happens is they schedule a serious meeting and advise you to bring a support person. Sensing the bad news, I decided I'd uh, need the best support person available, so I spent $200 to hire a clown. Today, somehow, it's the top uh, top story in the New Zealand Herald. They urged him to bring a support person. That seems rather odd. Stranger still that he paid to have a (laughs) clown join him. Sometimes, well... You know what I'm going to say, don't you? (laughs) Well, that's an interesting choice nonetheless. Yeah, he admitted that his choice to be accompanied by the entertainer to the meeting uh, where he was given his pink slip was a touch unusual. That's how he put it. It was rather uh, noisy, uh, the guy making balloons while they were having the meeting and telling him that it was, you know, his time there was over. But that's what he did. That's where the clown squirts the <laughs> HR person with their... Uh, yeah, flower. Yeah. A little plastic flower. Basically, he was, I assume, one of the best clowns in Auckland. They were getting a free service. They were also getting the entertainment from Joe the Clown. <laughs> it's uh, unclear when the incident actually happened, but it was made public uh, just this week. Yeah, I guess it made a really uncomfortable situation uh, a happy time for everybody. As a happy, uncomfortable time yeah. for everybody. Did did he come in a little car? <laughs> yeah, 
I, I don't know how he arrived, but I know they both left. <laughs> and one of them was carrying a box. That much and I another know. one was carrying a paycheck. <laughs> that was $200 lighter for having paid this clown. No, I meant the clown was oh. carrying it. <laughs> well, that's yeah. true. He had one. Yeah. A man in Pennsylvania was living a nightmare early Monday after he fell asleep inside a dumpster and woke up screaming inside a garbage truck. Everybody's nightmare. Yeah. The <laughs> How do you fall? Anyway, fall asleep inside it. The unidentified man told police he had gotten separated from a friend the night before and needed a place to go to sleep, choosing the nearby dumpster. That probably wouldn't have been my first choice, but a driver with Republic Services was emptying a garbage container into the back of his truck at 3.30 a.m. when he heard a man screaming, growing louder. Well, the driver told police he uh, left the truck and opened the sliding door in the rear when he discovered the man. Unable to get the man out himself, he called for police help. Firefighters eventually pulled the unidentified man from the back of the truck. The man was taken to the hospital with minor injuries to the face and knee and is resting comfortably in an appropriate place in a hospital bed. Wow. First of all, how do you sleep in a dumpster? I'm not sure I would be able to sleep in well, one. Well, if the garbage soft, it's easy. I suppose so. An Englishman spent almost three years and spent $37,000 of his son's inheritance fighting a traffic ticket. A fine that initially would have cost him around $120, but he wanted justice. The 71-year-old says he was clocked driving 35 miles per hour in a 30-mile-per-hour zone while taking a day trip to the city of Worcester in 2016. Um, He said he was certainly not doing more than 30 miles per hour and was surprised to find out days later he received a notice that law enforcement intended to prosecute him. I really could not believe that I was um, had been speeding, he said. I made a simple day, uh, day out turn very sour, actually. He told investigators he had no um, case to answer and hired experts to defend him in court about the possibility of a faulty speed camera. So it wasn't him. It was the speed camera. He told investigators he had um, he expected the situation to play out fairly quickly, but it didn't work out in his favor. It took him four visits to the magistrate's court before his appeal was heard, which he lost. He then lost another appeal in August, according to the BBC. All in all, he said he spent the best part of 30,000 pounds, which is roughly 37,000 U.S. dollars, on lawyers, court fees, travel expenses in an effort to try to fight his speeding ticket. I'm sick and tired at the whole system, which is steamrolling ordinary people, he said. I regret the amount of money. I very simply wanted justice. Well, a spokesperson for the Crown Prosecution Service, which prosecutes criminal cases in England and Wales, told the news outlet there were a multiplicity of issues involved in the case, including a lengthy trial at the magistrate's court, subsequent hearings at the Crown Court to progress an appeal against the conviction, which is why the case took so long to conclude. So he didn't get the justice, in quotes, that he was looking for, but he did... uh, Lighten the load by spending 30,000 pounds in the process. Wow. A Pennsylvania couple is accused of theft after going on a shopping spree with $120,000 that was mistakenly deposited into their bank account, according to a report. If you discover $120,000 in your bank account that you did not deposit, that you were not expecting, that does not belong to you, the last thing you should do is go on a spending spree. Robert Williams and his wife, Tiffany, uh, they appeared in court on Tuesday after they spent two and a half weeks blowing through most of their accidental windfall on expenses such as cars, bills, a camper. The 36 and 35-year-old arrived, uh, were arraigned rather on charges for theft 
and receiving stolen property. State police said that uh, B&B Bank deposited the dough into the couple's account on the 31st of May in a clerical error by a bank teller. By the 19th of June, the pair had spent six figures on purchases that included an SUV, two four-wheelers, and a car trailer. Free money! They also allegedly used the money for bills, car repairs, cash purchases, as well as giving uh, friends $15,000. Well, that was nice. Well, that was nice. 15000 stolen dollars. They have to ask their friends to give it back. That's too late. The friends already bought a car with it. What is it? Possession is nine-tenths of the law. (laughs) They thought if it was in their account that it was somehow theirs. That is never the case. And at minimum, they should have inquired at the bank as to why this money was in their account and confessed that it did not belong to them. They did not expect it and were certain an error had been made. Well, what's amazing to me is they must have known something was up there because they spent it all on big ticket items very quickly. Yeah. Like, hey, if we do this, we won't get caught. Yeah, maybe so. Hmm. What would you do? I'd notify the bank Mm -hmm. after I stopped first laughing and then crying uncontrollably. Then I would call the bank. James and I actually had this conversation, and he would have postponed that decision as if somehow that money was... Was magically his? (laughs) Yeah. He thought, well, maybe if I, you know, there was a little time, it would end up being mine. No. If it's yours, it will be yours whether or not you make inquiries. (laughs) Like, maybe a little time will go by and it'll be okay. No one will notice. (laughs) (laughs) An international drug smuggling ring was busted in Australia with the help of an angry seal. We'll tell you all about it when we come back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after you fix my screen. 20 minutes after 5 o'clock. Thank you very much. I'm not sure how you did that, but I appreciate it very much, Clark. An international drug smuggling ring was busted in Australia with the help of an angry seal. The seal prevented the gateway to, uh, rather, the getaway of two foreign nationals from a small island off the uh, coast, according to reports. Um... They woke it up and it jumped up with its big chest out and bellowed at them. Uh, That's according to a volunteer Marine Rescue Service vice commander. The guys basically had the choice of going through the seal or getting arrested, and they ended up choosing getting arrested. The two foreigners were on the yacht that they uh, ran aground in September before they attempted to flee in a dinghy. Uh, They were caught the next day after the seal interceded. Cops seized one ton of illicit drugs after their arrest. One ton. Uh, Two other foreign nationals and an Australian appeared in court in connection with the seizure on Thursday. We have disrupted a big international drug syndicate here, they said, with the help of an angry seal who had no idea what he had done. You just never know what good you're going to do by bellowing and stopping uh, marauders the national weather service shared radar images showing massive swarms of migrating dragonflies over three states Uh, they tweeted radar images showing the insects created storm cloud like shapes over ohio indiana and pennsylvania by the way that's my favorite summer bug is a dragonfly norman johnson a professor of entomology at ohio state university said the dragonflies are likely green darners on their way south for the fall 
He said large swarms of the insects are unusual, but can occur when local weather causes them to cluster. The big swarms have been recorded a lot over the years, but they're not regular. Big swarms of um, dragonflies. And an Idaho man with a penchant for breaking Guinness World Records achieved his latest record by breaking 98 pencils in one minute. He broke 98 pencils in a minute. Why, why is that a thing? David Rush, who has uh, more than 100 Guinness records to his name, appeared this week at the Ohio, the Idaho Out-of-School Network Conference and attempted the pencil-breaking record with an audience of attendees. Why is that a thing, and why are people watching? I could do that just by sitting on a package of pencils. Well, there you go. Uh, he spoke to the conference about the importance of STEM education. Those are caps, S-T-E-M. Snapped 98 pencils in one minute, breaking the previous record of 90. What does that have to do with I STEM? I have no idea. He said he prepared for the record by practicing with bamboo chopsticks so he wouldn't have to buy hundreds of pencils just to destroy them. Why destroy the ones you did? If you sit just a little bit wrong while doing that, mm, you're looking at me like, what? (laughs) Yeah, okay. Bamboo sticks. Mm. I, I just don't get it. And then there's this, a Maryland theme park, Six Flags to be precise, is challenging couples to spend 30 hours together in an unusually tight space for the 30-hour coffin challenge. The competition, part of the uh, Fright Fest, will see six couples of any sort, romantic pairs, family members, or friends, spending 30 hours in a coffin together from 4 p.m. September 27th until 10 p.m. September 28th. The couples will be allowed to have a friend nearby during park hours, but they will be alone when the park is closed. That is, alone, save for some uh, the person with whom they're in the coffin... Anyone who gets out of their coffin for any reason, with the exception of the designated bathroom and meal breaks, will be automatically disqualified and not eligible to win the contest. Yes, it's a contest, so there will be prizes. The couple remaining at the end of the 30-hour challenge will receive $600 a pair, uh, $600, comma, a pair of uh, 2020 gold season passes and a Fright Fest prize package. Do they have to have the lid closed? That's a good question. I don't know. They will potentially be exposed to fog, dramatic lighting, flash photography, extreme weather conditions, officials say. Um, the deadline is September. So I guess if you wanted to do it, it might be too late. No. Why would you do this? It's just fascinating to me what people will do for that, little attention. And That reminds me of that old Twilight Zone episode. Do you remember that? The woman in prison, she's concocted a plan to get out. And it's with the, uh, I don't know if it was... Uh, Somebody in the prison is going to help her. She's convinced him to do this. It's an older man who works in the hospital part of the of the prison anyway. He's not thrilled to do it, but he's going to help her. The plan is she's going to go out with one of the coffins that they uh, of, the, of a prisoner who's right. died. And she's going to stay in the coffin, and then she's going to be dug out by him later that night. Except she's got to share that coffin with another An actual... So she's waiting for him to show up. She's buried, you know, and she lights a cigarette lighter to see who she's next to. And it's him. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't remember that and episode. You hear this but that's... scream, <laughs> and the camera, you know, uh, pans up, pans up through the dirt, <laughs> through the dirt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. no, she's six feet under. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for that image. Yeah. <laughs> don't get in a coffin. <laughs> Never voluntarily. <Wow>. No. <laughs> A piece of lost property turned into Florida Sheriff's uh, Deputy's office after being found on a beach wound up being a message in a bottle that contained the ashes of a beloved family member. Uh, The Walton County Sheriff's Office said Sergeant Paula Pendleton 
was on patrol when she was given a piece of lost property found on the Gulf of Mexico beach. The item turned out to be a bottle containing two notes for $1 bills and a small pouch of human ashes. Uh, This bottle contains the cremation ashes of my son, Brian, who suddenly and unexpectedly passed away on March 9th, 2019, one of the notes said. More than anything, he longed to be free, so I'm sending him on one last adventure. The note said Brian Mullins of Dallas, Texas, died at age 39. Hi, my name is Peyton, another note said. When my father passed, I was 14 years old. I was, it has struck my whole family pretty hard, and so far, it's been a very hard road. But like my granny said, he loved to be free. So that's exactly what we're doing, she wrote. Well, the note said the $4 enclosed in the bottle were meant to cover the cost of a phone call to the family to let them know where the bottle ended up. Pendleton said she contacted the family via text message to tell them Brian's journey would continue. I am putting the note back into the bottle with Brian's ashes and delivering it to a friend who is a charter boat captain, she wrote. He has offered to bring Brian way out into the Gulf so that he can continue his adventure. But before that, I want you to know he got to do a ride along with the deputy before drifting once again. Well, that's kind of an interesting thought. I mean, I I don't attribute much value to ashes, but for a family that's grieving, uh, kind of an interesting way to deal with the remains of their loved one. And then there's this. A group of co-workers at a British company danced in a conga line for 14 miles to break a Guinness World Record and raise money for charity. Okay, that latter half kind of makes it make a little sense. The employees of Nationwide Building Society were joined together by a length of string to keep them traveling in a line. So they uh, did the conga for 57 laps around the Black Lace Track in their town in England. The song Do the Conga played uh, on a loop 110 times during the five-and-a-half-hour world record attempt. The group said they traveled a total of 14 miles, beating the previous record of 11 miles. Uh, They're now seeking official recognition from Guinness. The conga dancers raised money for Julia's house. It's a children's hospice. Okay, I wouldn't even consider something like that just to have your name in a book, but to raise some funds, maybe. Not so bad. I remember that song. That would be an awfully large number of times to hear it on loop. 110 Uh times over five and a half hours. Yeah. And a London eatery is drawing in dairy-loving patrons with an unusual gimmick, being the world's first conveyor belt cheese restaurant. First world. Uh, The Pick and Cheese Restaurant in Seven Dials uh, Market in Covenant Garden offers 25 varieties of cheese sourced from around Britain on a 130-foot conveyor belt that passes by patrons. The cheese plates are color-coded by price and cheese flight. Options are also available. The eatery also offers cheese themes off-belt dishes, including a grilled cheese sandwich and pan-fried anglaumi. I'm not sure what that is. The eatery purports to be the world's first conveyor belt cheese restaurant. There's a reason for that, but if you're a cheese lover, this might be of interest. It's like a sushi conveyor belt, only with cheese. Wow. Well, the Strong National Museum of Play announced the finalists for National Toy Hall of Fame induction. We'll tell you what some of those inductees are. Hint, one has a pony. Another has something to do with the universe. That and more when we return from this break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on a fun Friday afternoon. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 35 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Strong National Museum of Play announced the finalists of the National Toy Hall of Fame induction. 
That includes My Little Pony, Risk, Masters of the Universe, and Magic the Gathering. The museum is located in Rochester, New York. They announced the 12 finalists on Wednesday for induction into the Toy Hall of Fame this year. The finalists, as I mentioned, um, include My Little Pony, Masters of the Universe, Care Bears, uh, Jenga, Magic the Gathering, Matchbox Cars. I used to love Matchbox Cars. Yeah, I had Hot Wheels cars. Nerf Blaster, uh, Fisher Price Corn Popper, Coloring Book. Mm. Coloring Book, I guess that's a toy. I like the Corn Popper, though. I, hasn't every kid had one of those? What is the Corn Popper? It's that little thing you push along oh, yeah, with yeah. the dome. And, that's what it, yeah. yeah. Um, coloring Book and Smartphone and Top. Uh, these 12 toys represent the wide scope of play from the simple traditional spinning top that's been played um, since prehistory to the ultra-modern smartphone, which has dramatically changed how people of all ages play and connect. Um, whether old or new or imaginative or physical, all 12 of these toy finalists share an undeniable ability to inspire people to learn, create, discover through play. Three toys selected are part of the um, Player's Choice ballot at townhalloffame.org. Uh, will be inducted alongside three selected by the members of the National Selection Advisory Committee. So these are the 12 nominees. I'll repeat them. They are, um, let's see, My Little Pony, Masters of the Universe. Now, what is that? Is it a game? I don't know what uh, that one that is. Was, that was something when I was a kid. I, I'd have to look it up, but yeah. I kind of remember it. Care Bears. Yeah. Risk, which is a game. Jenga, a yeah, game. Risk is more of an adult game, well, isn't it? Well, that's what I would have thought. There might be a children's version, but okay. Magic the Gathering. So don't know it's anything. a game of global domination. <laughs> Children playing that? Well, yeah, they're playing it in Washington, so I don't know why they wouldn't play it. They don't play it well. No. Uh, Matchbox Cars. Nerf Blaster. Fisher Price, Corn Popper, Coloring Book, Smartphone, and Top. Smartphone seems sort of odd on that list, but yeah. I guess people do play a lot of games on their phones, so I suppose it belongs. Masters of the Universe, that was like He-Man and Skeletor and all that. That was in the 80s. So was it a board game or action figures? What was it? Uh, it was action figures, and then I think there was a movie. I remember the movie, Masters yeah. of the Universe, but... Huh. I remember, so this is funny, I still have a bunch of the old um, Hot Wheels cars mm -hmm. and some of the, the uh, Matchbox, and I've let my daughter play with them. But I've seen that when she comes home from parties, little birthday parties and stuff, if those are little party favors or whatever, they're not die-cast metal anymore. No, no, they're, they're plastic. not. Those Matchbox, I didn't do the Hot Wheels as much, but those Matchbox cars, I thought they were very impressive. They were so detailed, yeah. they had weight to them, and they yep. were that die-cast metal. Yep. Yeah. I loved those. My sister was really the collector, and she had oodles of them, but I always thought those were impressive. And I always liked Tonka toys because they, they too, were made really well and yeah. reflected the actual things. Anyway, they didn't make the list. A family of hikers who were stranded above a 40-foot waterfall in California were rescued thanks to a message, once again, in a bottle, and a pair of strangers who found the request for help. Well, one 44-year-old who had been backpacking uh, with his girlfriend and his 13-year-old son, uh, and after about two and a half hours of trekking, ended up at the, I think it's Arroyo Seco Narrows. It's a spot on the river surrounded by 40-foot uh, walls of solid rock. Well, they said the river current was uh, too strong for them to pass, and he discovered a rope that he expected to be uh, in place for them to rappel down was missing. So the hikers searched the area and discovered that they were trapped. But they could hear voices somewhat nearby. Uh, their calls for help went unanswered. Apparently, they could not be heard. So they carved help uh, on a um, water bottle and inserted a note, and this was on Nalgene uh, water bottle, 
uh, they inserted a note reading, we're stuck at the waterfalls, please get help. Well, the family tossed the bottle over the waterfall, set up some rocks on the uh, tarp, reading SOS to help rescuers locate them. Hours later, they were found by a California Highway Patrol helicopter. Um, two hikers were found uh, that found the message rather in a bottle and contacted authorities to begin the search were um, certainly heralded as heroes. The hikers who found the bottle didn't give authorities their names, but uh, said they, they're uh, hoping to be identified so that they can be thanked personally. Those who were rescued said that was the most backward, twisted, awkward way of putting that. But anyway, they're hoping to identify uh, the pair who found the bottle and called for help. Apple unveiled its new iPhone 11 devices in a blaze of publicity on Tuesday, although images of the phone's new camera cluster are apparently sparking some people's, um, what they call it, tripophobia or fear of small holes. So the phone triggered some folks. The iPhone 11 has a new dual camera lens cluster, while the iPhone Pro and Pro Max feature a triple lens cluster. Well, the structure of the new camera clusters, which are next to the iPhone's torch and microphone, um, has sparked a visceral response from some users on social media. Others reacted to the talk of iPhone 11 related to tripophobia with skepticism. The mental health website Very Well Mind describes tripophobia as an aversion to or fear of clusters of small holes or bumps or patterns. When people see this type of cluster, they experience symptoms of disgust or fear, it explained. Examples of objects that might trigger fear response uh, include seed pods or a... Um, close-up image of someone's pores or a beehive or something like that. Other trigger objects are said to include holes in diseased or decaying flesh and insect eyes. So uh, there's some debate about uh, among researchers as to whether tripophobia is a genuine condition. Early reports of it uh, were first described in an online forum back in 2005, but it's not been recognized as a distinct diagnosis by the American Psychiatric, uh, Psychiatric Association. But um, if you suspect you have tripophobia, the iPhone 11 with the three cluster camera lenses may not be for you. Now, my question isn't so much, okay, whether or not you have tripophobia, but why three cameras? What's the benefit of that? I don't know if it takes a better picture, if it's panoramic. I, I don't understand what the technology does. But anyway, if you're tripophobic, it won't matter because you won't be able to handle it. You can't handle the lens. Robocallers are alive and kicking as they constantly change tactics, according to a new report. Americans are still flooded by 200 million unwanted robocalls every day, according to a report from Transaction Network Services. High-risk calls uh, grew at 28% from the third quarter of last year to the second quarter of this year, while nuisance calls jumped 38%. A high-risk call typically involves an attempt to identify theft, which can cause severe emotional distress, while nuisance calls are typically not malicious, but they result of um, careless, unintentional calling patterns. Carriers have become more aggressive in blocking robocalls, according to um, sources. That's why subscribers of certain services uh, may see high-risk calls not growing as fast as nuisance calls, but they are continuing to plague those of us who carry our phones with us. I've been getting, uh, I think I have logged in four of them now, a computer-generated voice that says, my social security number has been suspended unless I contact them and resolve whatever the issue is. My social security number has been suspended. And if I fail to do anything about it, they will suspend it indefinitely. Suspend my social security number. 
Anyway, I've gotten four of those now with a computer-generated voice. So be careful. Around 2,000 people are vying to win 1 million euros offered by a German city to anyone who can deliver solid proof it doesn't exist. Officials of Byfield announced the competition last month, saying that there are no limits to creativity, but only incontrovertible evidence will be rewarded. The idea that the Western city doesn't exist was first floated by computer expert Achim Held, who posted the satirical claim online back in 1994 to poke fun at Internet conspiracy theories. Still, the Byfield conspiracy, as it's known, has become enduringly popular, prompting even Chancellor Angela Merkel once to jokingly cast doubt on Byfield's existence. Well, the city's marketing agency said Thursday it received more than 2,000 emails by Wednesday night's deadline, around 300 from abroad. It will announce the results next week, Tuesday of next week on the 17th of September. Incontrovertible evidence that the city of Byfield in Germany does not exist, part of the Byfield conspiracy. And after months of speculation surrounding a study into whether the Loch Ness Monster was real, the researchers behind it have claimed it could be a giant eel and not a giant uh, plesiosaur from a long-lost era. Speaking at a press conference early Thursday morning, New Zealand researcher Neil Gemmel gave his plausible explanation for what people may have seen in the past, but added that it is most certainly not a dinosaur. We can't find any evidence of a creature that's remotely related to that in our environmental DNA sequence data, he says. So sorry, I don't think the plesiosaur idea holds up based on the data that we have obtained. There is a very significant amount of eel DNA, however, the geneticist from New Zealand's University of Otago says. Eels are very plentiful in Loch Ness, with, uh, with eel DNA found at pretty much every location sampled. There are a lot of them, so... Are they giant or are there giant eels? Well, the data doesn't reveal their size, but the sheer quantity of the material says that we can't discount the possibility that there may be giant eels in Loch Ness. It's not nearly as interesting to think that there might be giant eels poking their head up out of the surface of the water. Um, It's not as interesting as a plesiosaur. I don't want to run into one of those either, though. Yeah, I'm not going to be in Loch Ness anytime soon putting my feet in the water because it's infested with eels, apparently. Well, authorities in Texas said a chimpanzee or possibly a monkey has been spotted on the loose in the area of one town and rescuers are attempting to locate it using a drone. BioAnimal Service said it's uh, been using a drone from League City Animal Control to search for a monkey that's been reported, cited. Texas Parks and Wildlife spokesperson said officials believe the animal is a chimpanzee and game wardens are aware of the reports, but Santa Fe Police and the Galveston County authorities are currently leading the efforts to locate the primate. Animal Services said officials checked with all area holders of special permits to keep exotic primates, but none of the animals were missing. The Santa Fe Police Department said it's been unable to substantiate the reports of a primate in the area, but multiple sightings have been reported. I think it may, in fact, just be eels swinging through the trees of Texas. Yeah, that sounds right. About right. Quick break. Be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, a kid who absolutely loves the University of Tennessee, he wanted to represent the volunteers. They're the Tennessee Volunteers. During his elementary school's college color days, but he didn't own any of their apparel. So he took the matters, took the matter into his own hands. Now we're talking about a kid, a Florida student, 
And kids can be, well, pretty cruel to one another. Laura Snyder, who is his teacher at the elementary school in um, Altamont Springs, says that he drew the letters U, capital U, and capital T, the university's logo, on paper, and he pinned it to an orange shirt. That was, you know, an elementary school student. It wasn't a professional job. When the day finally arrived, he was so excited to show me his shirt, the teacher said. Uh, Actually, she's writing on Facebook on Wednesday. I was impressed that he took it uh, one step further to make his own label. But by lunchtime, the spirited volunteers fan was in tears. Some girls at the lunch table next to his, who didn't even participate in College Colors Day, had made fun of his sign that he'd attached to the shirt. He was devastated, his teacher says. He was bullied for his homemade University of Tennessee t-shirt. The school um, tried to comfort him, but he was beyond consolation. Well, in hopes of raising his spirits, his teacher said she planned on buying him an official University of Tennessee t-shirt and asked friends if they had contacts with the school who could um, make it a little extra special for him. Well, by Thursday, her Facebook post had gone, there's the word, wait for it, viral among volunteers fans, with lots of people leaving supportive comments. And it wasn't long before the University of Tennessee itself reached out because they wanted to send the student a care package full of swag and apparel. You all have taken this above and beyond what I had ever imagined, Schneider wrote, the little boy's teacher. She updated the Facebook post on Friday to let everybody know how excited the student was to receive the care package. My student was so amazed at all the goodies in the box, she said. He proudly put on the jersey and one of the many hats that were in the boxes. All who saw had either goosebumps or tears while we explained that he was inspired and touched Uh, by all of that, and that he had himself inspired and touched the lives of so many other people. What's more, University of Tennessee said it was uh, turning his UT design into an official T-shirt. Huh. Sharon, a Florida elementary student's volunteer pride by wearing his design on your shirt, too, the university's official campus store said on Twitter. Well, according to the university, a portion of the proceeds from every shirt sold will go to an anti-bullying foundation. When I told him that his design was being made into a real shirt and people wanted to wear it, his jaw dropped, his teacher said. He had a big smile on his face, walked taller, and I could tell his confidence grew today. Although Snyder kept the student's photo and name private, she shared a note written by his mother on Facebook. I am overwhelmed, she wrote, by the love I feel from this extended community and the pride I feel for my son and for being a volunteer fan. Every comment items sent, and action taken on behalf of my son will never be forgotten and hopefully will serve as inspiration for him throughout his life, his mom said. Well, demand for the student's T-shirt was so high on Saturday that it crashed the University of Tennessee's online shop, and it literally is the same design that he had put on a piece of paper, the capital letter U, the capital letter T, rather uh, unevenly drawn, um, uh, after the U, it had some words written, and after the T, a couple of dots and some other things. Anyway, crash the University of Tennessee online shop. Randy Boyd, the interim university president, even chimed in, tweeting that he was touched by the student's story and loved his imagination behind designing his own shirt. By the way, you can now go to the University of Tennessee's online shop if you'd like to see the shirt or purchase one for yourself. University of Tennessee. Well, taking a look at uh, what's coming up, at least in part, on the uh, lineup tomorrow, or I should say next week on the program, Chris Thurman will be my guest. 
A book that was written some 30 years ago has been reintroduced on its 30th anniversary. And this edition of The Lies We Believe, Renew Your Mind and Transform Your Life, will be the subject of a conversation with Chris Thurman. That's coming up on Monday right here on The Georgine Rice Show. On Tuesday, we'll talk with David Duell. Dr. Duell is the author of Disability in Mission, The Church's Hidden Treasure. Uh, this is a book that's endorsed by Johnny Erickson Tata and uh, her ministry. And so we're going to talk about the role that the disabled can and are playing in the ministry of the church. And that's uh, coming up on Tuesday. Dr. David Duell will be my guest. On Wednesday, Sharon Hode Miller will be my guest. She's the author of the book, Nice. Why we love to be liked and how God calls us to more. Sometimes in our effort to be liked, we simply compromise things that are far more important than being liked. And we're going to talk about that with her on uh, Wednesday. On Thursday, I'm looking forward to talking to retired Judge Tom Cole. Uh, The ministry Paid in Full is a ministry that he and Pastor Rich Jones from Hillsboro Calvary Chapel have founded. And this is a ministry that reaches out to Um, prisoners. And as you might recall, they're establishing a seminary of sorts um, in at the correctional institution in Salem. Corbin University has partnered with them. A facility on site has been made available to them. And he's going to bring an update. Uh, As you might recall, the fundraising effort was quite extraordinary. The amount of money necessary for them to reform the facility that they're they've now been given access to was um, quite large, and they're moving forward with this. It's really very exciting. As I mentioned, they've partnered with Corbin University. They're providing them with the faculty and curriculum and a a lot of other things as well. Uh, But we'll talk with uh, Judge Cole about that on Thursday. Again, uh, he is the president of Paid in Full, and he, along with Pastor Rich Jones, both of whom are fathers who lost daughters to violent crime, um, are championing this ministry that reaches out to and ministers to those who are incarcerated, sometimes for violent crimes, but for all kinds of offenses. So we'll talk with him about that. And then on Friday, I'm looking forward to spending a weekend with my friends and sisters from Scapoose. Branches Women's Ministry is holding their retreat, and I have the uh, uh, the humble assignment of speaking. So I'm going to take uh, the weekend to spend with my sisters along the coast from Branches. So we'll have the best of the Georgine Rice Show, I think. I haven't really talked this through with James. He may have... Um, another idea for that, but uh, I'll be out of the studio on Friday, but back in studio on Monday. So that's essentially the lineup for next week and looking forward uh, to sharing that with you. Um, we'll probably have some information on the FISA investigation. As we mentioned at the top of the program, information has now been uh, passed along to the Department of Justice. Uh, we also know that the uh, McCabe indictments might be released next week. And so those are two of the bigger stories that we're anticipating. But of course, there's always something going on. And there is another hurricane making its way to the same area that Dorian uh, hit. And that, of course, we hope is a lesser uh, story because of its uh, lack of impact. But we will certainly be following that over the weekend um, as well. Just want to mention, we're going to be at um, Oregon City Nazarene, Donna Stutzman, my sister, Dan Rice, and I. In concert, if you are looking for a place to worship on Sunday, we're going to be there 
with something of a mini concert Sunday morning at Oregon City Nazarene. So we might see some of you there as well. Want to thank James Blind for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. I hope you'll have a great weekend and we'll be back with us again on Monday. Once again, we'll be talking with Chris Thurman, talking about the 30th anniversary edition of The Lies We Believe, Renew Your Mind and Transform Your Life. The book is published by Thomas Nelson, celebrating 30 years of uh, impacting lives all across the, the, uh, the country. Thanks for listening. Hope you'll join us again. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.